Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. After the fall of the Berlin Wall, many of us threw away our CND badges and assumed it would be impossible for nuclear weapons to be used in Europe. There were nervy moments, tensions between India and Pakistan, missile tests in North Korea, but nuclear war in Europe didn't feel like an imminent threat. That was until Russia invaded Ukraine and Vladimir Putin said he was putting his nuclear missiles on an unspecified level of alert. What weapons does Russia have? How might it use them? Matthew Harris is a senior research fellow in the Proliferation and Nuclear Policy Programme at RUSI, based in Berlin, and knows more than most of us about the nuclear threat. Matthew, welcome to The Bunker. Hi, Roz. Nice to be talking to you. Tell us what weapons Russia actually has. What is its nuclear stockpile? So Russia has about 4,500 nuclear warheads that are potentially available for use. Of those 4,500 about 1,500 are deployed on what are called strategic systems. So those are basically intercontinental range platforms, which means ballistic missile submarines, ground-based missiles, and and long-range bombers. And then there are extra strategic warheads in storage. On top of the strategic range weapons, there are something like 1,000 and 2,000 so-called non-strategic warheads, which would be for use on shorter range systems, which could range from ground-based missiles to aircraft or, or to ships or submarines. So Russia has quite a wide range of nuclear weapons. The United States has similar numbers overall, but Russia has more of the so-called non-strategic systems, the shorter range systems, and it has a wider variety of those kinds of weapons. Because of the legacy of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I think many people think of nuclear weapons as a nuclear weapon is an immensely destructive bomb. And it's hard to separate out the different kinds. It, it feels as though, you know, a small one must be just as destructive potentially as a large one. Is that the wrong way to think about nuclear weapons in the world at the moment? No, I mean, there are absolutely, there are different kinds. There are nuclear weapons can have different yields. So some are more lower yield than others. So to put it into context, the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima was on the order of 15 kilotons. That's 15,000 tons of conventional TNT. And the weapons that exist in the world today range from sort of one kiloton or less than one kiloton at the low end to the hundreds of kilotons uh, at the high end. So there is a very great range of nuclear weapons that exist. It remains true, though, that any nuclear weapon is a very, very serious and destructive capability. And there is a very big difference, both in practical terms and in political and strategic terms, between using conventional weapons and nuclear weapons. Do you have a sense if Putin were to decide to deploy a nuclear weapon, presumably he might go for one at the smaller end rather than something enormous, you know, to almost make a statement rather than necessarily causing a huge amount of destruction? Yes, that's possible. 
And one of the scenarios that people have been worrying about, not just in this immediate crisis, but at least since Russia annexed Crimea in, in 2014, and even, even before that, is the possibility that Russia might use the threat of a, a limited nuclear strike to end a conflict that wasn't going very well on its terms as a way to kind of escape from the situation. So yeah, that is something that people are worrying about. But I think, you know, before we start kind of getting dragged in into worrying about what Putin might do, I think it's worth emphasizing a couple of things. One is that, yes, Russia is a nuclear armed state. And that by definition means that we have to take the risk of escalation very seriously. You know, any direct conflict with a nuclear armed state carries the risk that if the conflict gets out of control, nuclear weapons could be used. And that should make us very cautious about what we consider doing. On the other hand, you know, Vladimir Putin knows that nuclear weapons are scary things. And talking about nuclear weapons and using the frightening power of nuclear weapons is part of his bag of tricks for war and crisis. And the idea is to intimidate. And the thing to remember is that while it is scary and it is something to be taken seriously, using a nuclear weapon would also be for Vladimir Putin a disastrous and ruinous thing to do with very severe consequences. And I think we need to reinforce that message that the day after Vladimir Putin uses a nuclear weapon, and any nuclear weapon would be drastically worse for him than the day before. So I think, you know, let's talk about this stuff. Let's be cautious with what we do, but let's not lose sight of the fact that this is a threat designed to intimidate. And it's a threat that if, if followed through on would, would cause disastrous consequences for Putin himself. Does that mean that NATO would retaliate in some form with nuclear weapons if Putin did choose to use a nuclear weapon? Would you be fairly confident that would happen? NATO could choose to retaliate with nuclear weapons. It wouldn't necessarily have to choose to retaliate with nuclear weapons. It might decide that the best response would be to avoid a nuclear response and the risk of nuclear escalation and instead stick to a response with conventional military forces. The risk that Putin would face would be that he wouldn't be sure what the response would be. I think it's important to emphasize that for Putin to use a nuclear weapon would be undoubtedly regarded in the world at large as a horrific crime and out of all proportion uh, to the situation Russia is in and would very likely trigger very severe consequences by NATO. So whether or not NATO chose to go down the nuclear route, the options facing Putin would be, would be grim, I think. NATO has had pretty good intelligence so far of some of the things that Russia plans to do. Surprisingly good, I think, in some ways. If it received intelligence, if it was clear from satellites information, for example, that nuclear weapons were being prepared for use, do you think it would take preemptive action? Could it take preemptive action by striking missile sites? Is that something that's in the plan, as it were? Well, it's very hard to say from the outside what is in the in the plan. If NATO observed preparations for nuclear use by Russia, then yes, it might consider a preemptive attack. That wouldn't be straightforward. You know, it might not be possible to know exactly what Russia was doing, whether it was intending to 
to send a threatening signal by raising the alert status, the readiness of its nuclear forces, or whether it was actually planning to use nuclear weapons. In terms of decision by NATO to try to preempt certain kinds of nuclear use by Russia, you know, it would require a significant military strike against Russian forces, and that would cause immediate escalation, which would carry risks of its own. So it certainly would be a dangerous scenario. Do we know what the protocol is for nuclear weapon use in Russia? Does it have to be a certain number of people who approve weapons being fired? I presume it's not just the president himself, or is it? Uh, We don't know, is the simple answer. And, you know, in public and and outside of Russia, we don't know. And the people who do know uh, presumably can't say. The open sources that are available on that question are as far as I'm aware, largely based on assessments of how the Soviet system worked, so may not be up to date. And, you know, I'm not sure we should presume anything, really. I I think, um, you know, orders presumably have to be transmitted through a chain of command, but that's not the same necessarily as saying that people in that chain of command have the right to veto an order or or, or that they have a right to be consulted in the decision-making process. So I don't think we can give a definitive answer to that one. A couple of weeks ago, Steve Rosenberg, I think the BBC's correspondent in Moscow until recently, was mooting the idea that Putin might choose not to explode a nuclear bomb in Ukraine, but over the sea, for example, and the example he gave was the North Sea. Now, this may well be, as you say, that this might be very, very unlikely, but I wanted to ask what the effect is of a nuclear bomb if it's used in that way? Because I think a lot of people will be wondering, obviously they have a a strong idea of of the devastation that a nuclear bomb landing on a city would cause. But what happens if you explode a reasonably small nuclear bomb over the sea? Is it a little bit like a nuclear test in a way? Or would it create radioactive conditions that would be very, very serious for the countries nearby? I think the answer to that is that it, it depends. You know, the effects of nuclear weapons depend on the size of the nuclear weapon, the design of the weapon, where it's detonated. So if it's detonated on the ground or in the air or high up in the atmosphere, it depends on the sort of conditions on the surface where it's detonated. So what material it's detonated over. And it depends on weather conditions and so on. I don't want to speculate too much about the potential impacts, partly because they can vary. And partly for the reason I mentioned before, which is that part of Vladimir Putin's game here is to set our minds worrying about the scary things that could happen. The important message just to come back to is that any use of any nuclear weapon by Russia, even though of course there are different options that could be used, but any use would dramatically change the kind of war that Russia was in and would be likely to come with very severe consequences for Russia and for for Vladimir Putin himself. Whether or not the response from NATO and the wider world has anything to do with nuclear weapons, it would very much change the situation that we were in. President Zelensky has been calling for a no-fly zone. So have some people in the West, but NATO has made it clear that that is not thinkable for the moment because of the fears of an escalation. Do you share those fears? Do you think a no-fly zone would escalate the conflict in that way? You know, I think the way to think about this is 
to look past the question of whether we do, you know, if we do X or Y, will that cause Russia to use nuclear weapons? The point here is that with nuclear armed states, escalation is dangerous and escalation is hard to control. And so in the case of a no-fly zone, you would need to be willing to shoot down Russian planes. You'd need to be willing potentially to bomb Russian air defenses. And that puts you in a, in a direct conflict with Russia and Russia would respond. You know, it's, this isn't something where you can confidently predict exactly what would happen. The point is you're setting down a path where at the end of that path is the potential for nuclear weapons to be used. So it is, it is a question of risk. And so far, it's not a risk that, that Western states have been willing to take. Many other states have nuclear weapons. Do you worry that those states are perhaps even more likely or more likely to use nuclear weapons than Russia is in the next few years or so? Well, look, we're in the realm of speculation. I think that the bar for nuclear use remains very high, thankfully. It's hard to conceive of a scenario where a state uses nuclear weapons unless the stakes were extremely high for that country already. The lessons that other countries might draw from what's going on will be quite interesting. So I think if we make it through this conflict without a major escalation, and if Vladimir Putin comes out of this conflict with something that he regards as a success, which is hard to see how he'll manage it, but we might need that to be the case. It's possible that Putin will conclude that his nuclear weapons were useful in the sense that they deterred NATO from intervening directly, and other countries might see that and conclude the same. Or if this war goes very badly for Russia, you might conclude the opposite, that the attempts at nuclear blackmail didn't work and that NATO and Western countries continued to support Ukraine, not through direct conflict, but by supplying weapons, supplying money, by sanctioning Russia and so on. And the lesson might be that, you know, aggressive nuclear blackmail doesn't work. If, God forbid, a nuclear weapon was used, then you know, other countries might look at what the consequences were for, for Russia for using it and draw their own lessons. You know, I think we are very, unfortunately, we're still at the very early stages of this crisis. So we don't know what, at the minute, what those lessons are going to be. Dominic Cummings, for what it's worth, in one of his many tweets, says the apex of power hasn't taken nuclear weapons seriously for 20 years. Is he right about that? Yes, I think he is right about that. I think that... I mean, if we're talking about the apex of power in the UK, if by that we mean political power, so the very top political levels, cabinet level power, yeah, I think he's right. I think there's two aspects to this. One is the political aspect, which is that in party politics, Trident has become, has, or has been for you know, a good couple of decades, mainly about political signalling. You know, positions on Trident have been about signaling where you stand in broader politics, not necessarily about nuclear weapons themselves. And obviously the Labour Party has had its own complicated politics about nuclear weapons for a long time. But also I think in the Corbyn years under Labour, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was so strongly anti-nuclear weapons very much polarised the debate again. So that 
either opposing Trident or vehemently endorsing Trident became a political marker again. And it, a lot of time was spent making those arguments very loudly instead of talking about uh, all the questions in between pro or anti-nuclear weapons about, you know, what are they for? What threats are they trying to deter? And all the complicated stuff in between. The other thing is that from the you know, 1990s up until about 10 years ago, I think the, the dominant strand of conversation about nuclear weapons was basically, you know, how do we move nuclear disarmament forward? How do we get to a world free from nuclear weapons? How do we de-emphasize their importance in our security strategy and an advance, you know, global arms control discussions? And in, in sort of in UK strategy documents, that was, you know, a, a major lens through which nuclear weapons were seen. It was about, can we reduce the numbers? Can we de-emphasize them? And in fact, it was only really in the integrated review last year that there was again an emphasis on nuclear weapons as instruments of defense and of strategy. And that's because in the last 10 years, the global picture when it comes to nuclear weapons has got significantly worse. You know, since the annexation of Crimea, NATO strategists have been have been worrying about you know what an invasion of, of of the Baltic states, for example, would look like if if Russia threatened nuclear use. Um, Russia is developing uh, new weapon systems and upgrading its existing ones. China's arsenal is growing and, and diversifying. The India-Pakistan tensions are still there, and their nuclear arsenals are developing. The Iran nuclear deal has slid backwards. North Korea is still progressing, and so on. So, you know, it's been a very bad decade for nuclear weapons, and it's a, it's taken us until now to catch up with it. And the effect of all that, the effect of it being a tricky political topic for so long while the world has been getting worse is that people at the top of government for a long time, A, I think didn't think the nuclear weapons were the most relevant topic. You know, other, other topics were more interesting. And B, they've been slightly reluctant to, to talk about it because Trident is so politically sensitive. And that's led to some, to some serious issues. One is that people at the top levels of political power, I think, don't think I've got out of a habit of thinking in terms of nuclear deterrence and some of the concepts that were more widespread during the Cold War. And then the other thing that's happened is that the UK's nuclear program has suffered from, from inattention. You know, there have been quite serious delays and cost overruns in some pretty crucial nuclear weapons-related infrastructure in recent years. And I think at least part of that is the fact that it just simply hasn't had the top level political attention that it might have needed. Trident is reaching the end of its life, isn't it? No. In the 2030s, there will be new submarines and there will be a need for a new missile and a new warhead. So, I mean, they're, 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 it, it, it's reaching the point where they're having to act on replacement, but not, it's not imminently reaching the end of its life right now. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us and explaining a complex topic, which I think we've all been thinking about. And it's been very useful indeed to have your insight into it. Thanks, Ros. Pleasure to talk to you. If you found this podcast insightful, check out Doomsday Watch, our series presented by foreign policy expert Arthur Snell. Each day he's talking to experts with real insight into the Ukraine crisis. You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The 
The Bunker Daily was presented by Roz Taylor. The producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Ken Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.